0: In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, a tantalising first bite of the best of our stories from across the week, with a few delicious surprises thrown in for good measure. I'm Rob Gifford, and on your menu today, the historian John Lewis Gaddis assesses whether there might be order in Donald Trump's chaos, why Levi Strauss, the inventor of blue jeans, is back in style, and a glimpse of the first neighbourhood built from the internet up. But we start with the end of the world and how to avoid it. Disarmageddon was the headline on this week's cover. At the end of last month, the leaders of North and South Korea, Kim Jong-un and Moon Jae-in, made history as they stepped hand-in-hand across the border, dividing their two countries. They planted a peace tree. They hugged. Complete denuclearization will be achieved, Mr Moon declared.
1: Sadly, much as this newspaper wishes for a nuclear-free North Korea... A lasting deal remains as remote as the summit of Mount Pektu. The Kims are serial cheats and nuclear weapons are central to their grip on power.
0: Our cover story argued that the euphoria of the Korean summit hides the fact that global arms control is actually unravelling.
1: By May 12th, President Donald Trump must decide the fate of the deal struck in 2015 to curb Iran's nuclear programme. This week, Benjamin Netanyahu, Israel's Prime Minister, gave a presentation that seemed designed to get Mr Trump to pull America out. He may well oblige.
0: Scrapping the Iran deal would mean pulling dangerously on the first thread in the delicate net of agreements holding back a nuclear arms race.
1: Iran would be freer to ramp up uranium enrichment, putting it once more in sight of a weapon. The Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, or NPT, still the best bullock against the spread of the bomb, would be undermined. Other countries in the region, such as Saudi Arabia and Egypt, may well respond by dusting off their plans to become nuclear powers. Mr Trump would have to work even harder to convince Mr Kim that he can trust America.
0: America and Russia seem to have forgotten the risks of great power one-upmanship.
1: Take New Start, which caps the number of strategic warheads deployed by Russia and America at 1,550 each. It will expire in 2021 – unless Vladimir Putin and Mr Trump extend it, which looks unlikely. Instead, Mr Trump boasts that America's nuclear arsenal will return to the top of the pack, bigger and more powerful than ever before. But this is not the 1980s. The nature of war itself has changed. A cyber-attack to cripple the other side's nuclear command and control, which could be interpreted as the prelude to a nuclear first strike, is another potential cause of instability in a crisis. Verifying the capabilities of software is even harder than assessing physical entities such as launchers, warheads and missile interceptors. New approaches are urgently needed. And
0: you can read all about them in the briefing in this week's Economist. It's available on all good newsstands through our app and online. And if you go to economist.com forward slash radio offer, you can get the next 12 issues for just $12 or £12. When the stakes are this high, strategy is crucial. The latest guest on our chat show, The Economist Asks, was the historian John Lewis Gaddis. He's a professor of history at Yale University and winner of both a Pulitzer Prize for Biography and the National Humanities Medal. His new book, On Grand Strategy, looks at the greatest strategic thinkers of the past 2,000 years, from Tzu to Bismarck, and what we can learn from them. We asked him what he thinks of Donald Trump's grand strategy we do have previous examples of policy
2: makers, presidents and otherwise, who function by keeping their subordinates off balance. Maybe not to such an extreme as Trump has carried it, but if you were to go back and look at the comments of some of Franklin Roosevelt's closest advisors during World War II, they would say the precedent is completely unpredictable. The president tells different people different things. There's no order to this. It's complete chaos. And yet, uh, Franklin Roosevelt uh, came across in the end with a very, very an extraordinarily successful grand
0: strategy. And you can listen to the rest of that interview by subscribing to Economist Radio, wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're in there, don't forget to rate us. It makes all the difference. Studying your history can reap valuable rewards. Our U.S. business editor Vijay Vaithiswaran told our Money Talks podcast how the maker of the quintessential blue jeans has found success by not chasing the latest trend. In terms of marketing, they've really caught a cultural moment. Our hip audience members would know that Beyonce, the superstar, made quite a splash at Coachella, a music festival in California a few weeks ago. They would have also noticed that she was wearing high-rise Levi's cut-off shorts without any kind of paid endorsement from the company. It was a It caught a moment and went viral. It's just a a sign that the once dowdy brand of jeans, perhaps, is now quite hip. I think with traditional companies that have been around a long time, it's important, yes, to look to new trends, but ultimately to stick to your knitting. I think that's the lesson of Levi's. Now you've got your blue jeans on, let's hit the open road. An article in the United States section of this week's paper explained why, as you cruise down a dusty highway in California, you might hear this blaring from the speakers of a passing truck.
3: That's Truck Union by Surjit Khan. Like the 1970s classics, Mr Khan's ditty is all blue jeans, work boots and American dream fulfilment. Unlike those classics, though, the music video features turbaned dancers in flashy kurtas belting out Punjabi lyrics while gyrating to Bangra beats. It's the sound of a change of gear in the trucking industry. Gurinder Singh Khalsa, the chairman of Sikhs PAC, a Sikh political organisation, says there are approximately 150,000 Sikhs in trucking, 90% of whom are drivers. The North American Punjabi Trucking Association, or NAPTA, estimates that Sikhs control about 40% of trucking in California. In February, for the first time, Overdrive magazine, the self-described Voice of the American Trucker, featured a Sikh driver on its cover.
0: And adding some welcome variety to the coffee and donuts,
3: A network of Indian truck stops is spreading along the main routes... Serving some fine dal and naan bread.
0: The Economist's Open Future season, debating the classic liberal values of open markets, free speech, and open societies, is now in full swing. The latest episode of Babbage, our science and technology podcast, looked at the impact of big data and artificial intelligence on society. Bruce Schneier is one of the world's leading experts in cryptography. He told us how these technologies are shaping surveillance in China. Well, in
1: China, there isn't really this wall between government and corporations. Surveillance in China is much more political. It has to do with free speech and political ideas married with a censorship regime. And China has the goal to surveil all of its citizens pretty much all of the time. And the technology allows that. They are talking about giving people individual scores based on their behavior online. And then that score follows them through life and affects whether they can get a job or buy property. Big brother, eat your heart out.
0: But of course, access to these kinds of data also has the potential to greatly improve our lives. A piece in the business section of this week's paper visited Keyside in Toronto, It's being billed as the first neighbourhood to be built from the internet
2: up. Sidewalk Labs, an urban innovation subsidiary of Google's parent company Alphabet, is planning to make it a platform for testing how emerging technologies might ameliorate urban problems such as pollution, traffic jams and a lack of affordable housing. Its innovations could be rolled out across an 800-acre expanse of the waterfront, an area as large as Venice. It
0: doesn't actually exist yet, but this summer, pilot projects will start to test its ambitious vision. There will be robots delivering packages and hauling away rubbish via
2: underground tunnels, a thermal energy grid that does not rely on fossil fuels, modular buildings that can shift from residential to retail use, adaptive traffic lights and snow-melting sidewalks. Private cars are banned. A fleet of self-driving shuttles and robo-taxis would roam freely. That's what you'll be able to see. The real work will happen in the ether. Undergirding Keyside would be a digital layer, with sensors tracking, monitoring and capturing everything from how park benches are used to levels of noise to water use by lavatories. Sidewalk Labs says that collecting, aggregating and analyzing such volumes of data will make Keyside efficient, livable, and sustainable. Does that sound like utopia? Perhaps. Privacy concerns will doubtless arise over what data the sensors at Keyside will hoover up, who will own them, where they will be housed, and so on. You can always choose whether or not to download an app on your phone, says Kelsey Finch at the Future of Privacy Forum, a think tank. You can't easily opt out of the community that you live in.
0: And you can join the debate about how technology should shape our world. Go to economist.com forward slash open future. And finally, we turn from the most imaginative thinking about our shared future to the very origins of human creativity. This week's science and technology section included a picture of a very small piece of flint. It's about four centimetres long and marked with regular zigzag scratches. And according to Anna Mikic of the University of Bordeaux in France, it might just be the oldest known work of art. Dr. Mikic's analysis bears on the question of whether Neanderthals had anything that might remotely be described as an artistic impulse, a phenomenon many anthropologists suspect is unique to Homo sapiens. Of course, stones can become scratched for all sorts of reasons – but Dr. Maikic is convinced these markings were deliberate. Microscopic examination suggests the scratches were made by two different engraving tools, and also because, despite the flint being small, the pattern on it is framed by an unscratched area. If the scratches were accidental, some of them would probably reach the edge. And you can see this tiny piece of possibly abstract art and get more of all the stories we've featured online at economist.com. That's your lot for this week's Tasting Menu. I'm Rob Gifford. In London, this is The Economist.